Hey guys, this is Sam Hunter. Welcome to the Sam Hunter Podcast, where we discuss all things hunting, trapping, and fishing. You know, there's a lot of different deer attractants on the market today. But what if you could get one that was not only powerful, bringing in deer from long distances away, but was actually healthy for your deer herd as well? Check out Deer Kashi. It's a deer attractant made from fermented, certified organic rice brands saturated with effective microorganisms. It draws in deer from long distances. It keeps deer coming for days, and it improves your hunting success. Rice bran is a nutrient-dense food. It increases meat yield, provides phosphorus for growth and reproduction. You can order Deer Kashi. Just go to sales at eastcoastbotanicals.net. You know what's more? Use the promo code SAMHUNTER. They will cover your shipping for you and give you 5% off your order. Hey, Emily, welcome to the Sam Hunter Podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Today we're talking to Emily Mitchell. Um, she is currently a wildlife biologist at Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks in Region 7. And we're really excited to have you on the show today. Emily and I actually went to the same high school back in the day. Isn't that right? Yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy to think. But um, so we've got a lot of good stuff to get into today. Um, you've got a lot of experience uh, well, first of all, you are a wildlife biologist, so there's a lot of processes you had to go through to get to do what you're doing today. And I remember uh, as a kid, you know, I, I used to want, that's one of the things that was on my agenda of something I wanted to look into doing, just because I've always loved animals, um, was being a wildlife biologist. So uh, really excited to get into some of the things you've done. Um, and we'll get into, you know, some of your, your hunting stories, maybe a walkthrough or two later of uh, maybe one of your most memorable hunts, but I kind of want to start with the process of um, the different research projects you've done and the different things you've done to get to where you're at now. But before we do any of that, kind of explain to us in general, I know there's a whole lot to it, but in general, what it is that you do as a wildlife biologist, kind of your typical day, the things you do uh, in Montana. Yeah, for sure. So um Every day is different, <laughs> which is one of the positives and negatives, depending on the day, I guess. Um, but I do a wide range of things. Um, you know, I do our wildlife surveys. So I'm in charge of a specific area um, in southeastern Montana within the region. So there's four of us. So it's divided into four areas. So in my area, I'm in charge of doing all of the um population trend area surveys um, for the different wildlife species. I do, I help with some studies. I've started some studies that are just my own. I've done some studies that are, you know, statewide studies on wildlife populations. Uh, we work on habitat enhancement and conservation. Um, we have like 30 year leases and um, perpetual easements, things like that. I would I'm involved in that. I work on um, gaining and improving recreational and hunting access to private land. So most of where I work is private property. Um, so we have a program that the state does um, to help offset some of the costs for landowners. So they, they apply through me and I do contracts with these landowners every single year. 
Um, I do wildlife conflict resolution, so game damage when elk are in somebody's haystacks. I, I'm the one that gets the phone call and I get to, get to go help with that problem. Um, I also do customer service. Uh, people call me all year long wanting to know where to go hunting or advice on what to hunt when, you name it. <laughs> people call for crazy stuff, so I do all <laughs> sorts of stuff. That's awesome. And, you know, what's kind of, I know in Montana, it's one of those really, really great states for pretty much anything, uh, hunting, trapping, and fishing, because, you know, there's such an abundance of all kinds of wildlife there. And, you know, there's anything from, uh, obviously, you're not just hunting whitetails, there's there's moose, there's elk, there's all kinds of species. So what, what are maybe like the top um, two to three species that people are really when they go to montana especially from out of state and they're looking to either hunt or fish or whatever what are maybe the two to three top species that people go to montana specifically for i would say elk for sure would be number one right um and then probably deer we have both species of whitetail and mule deer here um so we get a lot of people hunting deer um in western montana there there might be there's a lot more opportunities for like bighorn sheep and mountain goats that are, you know, kind of a once in a lifetime kind of experience. So that's, that's probably up there too, but, um, not something that I deal with. (laughs) Right. And you know, I like for moose, is that, do you think that's one of those, um, like once in a lifetime for, I know every state's kind of different how they do that, but how how does that typically work in Montana for moose? Um, no, in Western Montana, it's not, I wouldn't call it once in a lifetime. We do. So like where I work, like we have moose occasionally, but we don't have like a season or tags in my region. But like north of me, they have, I think they give out like six tags or something. So that one might be once in a lifetime, but out West, there's, there's a lot, a lot more. And I, I can think of like friends whose family live out there and they, they get a tag fairly frequently. So Absolutely. And I know you'd mentioned you're also involved in um, helping people, you know, gain access to public lands and maybe opening up new public lands for hunting and fishing opportunities. Um, I've, I've heard talk about some things, you know, with like, I guess there was a, an issue in the news a while back or maybe even recently, I'm not sure, but where like there were some waterways that people were wanting access to, but there was like kind of an issue that, do you know what that was about? I'm trying to remember exactly the story on that. Oh, like maybe I... There- don't I'm um I know that there's so there's you know there's like oh gosh the stream stuff is not my like strong suit but I know there's like um and most waterways are once you're in the water it's public but then that doesn't necessarily mean that you can access land from the public water. <laughs> right, right. So there can be issues, but I don't know specifically. Right, which is a really interesting, interesting take on things, an interesting rule, because I've heard there are places even in Montana where, like, if you're basically bringing a deer back from your hunt, there are spots where you literally have to drag like put out a float and drag the deer on that because the water is considered that public land that you have the access to, but there's spots where you can't actually bring it on the shore. So it just seems like kind of an interesting dynamic in, in some spots. Yeah. I luckily that is not a thing I've ever had to do. With. 
(laughs) (laughs) All of the water in my area is like not all of it. A lot of the water that people access like hunting spots from is like going onto public land. Um, I mean, I guess there is some private land along the river that I, um, of the area. So like you can't just like go on private land, obviously, but there's a ton of public land right along (laughs) the lake. (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, but starting out, um, I know you've done a lot of different like tech technician positions and going way back to when you were doing uh, turtle tech at Cumberland Island National Seashore. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, first of all, I mean, I guess, you know, we knew each other back in high school. When did you sort of realize that you wanted to work with animals, you know, be a biologist and start this whole journey? Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess you're lucky and that you knew that being a wildlife biologist was a thing when you were a kid. I feel like most people don't, including myself. (laughs) (laughs) So growing up, like as a little kid, I always wanted to be, you know, a dolphin trainer or a dentist, which is weird because people's teeth are gross. But like, <laughs> um, so going to college, I actually I wanted to be a veterinarian when I first started college. Um, I went to Georgia College in Milledgeville as um, biology pre-vet, stayed there for three years, um, had some issues getting into classes and, you know, just like not being super interested. And I, I got really lucky. And my mom talked me into visiting University of Georgia. (laughs) Um, And I got lucky when we went and we happened upon this building that my parents just thought was really cool because of the architecture. And we went inside and it was the School of Forestry and Natural Resources there. And we ran into a professor and 20 minutes later, it was like, I want to go here and this is what I want to (laughs) do. Right. Um, So even when I did that. It, I, I started there as wildlife pre-vet because there are wildlife veterinarians. Um, and oh, by the time I graduated, I looked into vet school and it's almost more competitive than being a human doctor. And there's a lot of requirements and I don't think I was going to make the cut. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, you know, at that point in life, you don't really know what you want to do. Um, right. So my whole idea was just to go out and try some things out. <laughs> uh, so that's what I did. Yep. I started part of the wildlife program at University of Georgia. They do require um, like an internship uh, kind of thing. Um, so you can you can be a paid technician or you know, volunteer, whatever. And you take a class where you build your resume and do all these different things. So it's part of that. So my last summer in between, well, I guess I was in school for five years. So not because you have to be just because it took me that long (laughs) between my fourth and fifth year. (laughs) I um, worked on Cumberland Island as a sea turtle technician. Um, I did it through the Student Conservation Association, which is a pretty cool place to get a foot in the door um they have lots of things it's you're not making lots of money but if you're being a wildlife biologist you're never going to make lots of money (laughs) (laughs) um so it's more of like I got paid us I got provided housing I got paid like a small monthly stipend um which I totally survived on and then at the end I got um a fairly small 
um, but still worth it uh, scholarship to use for, you can use either to like pay off student loans or towards tuition later. Um, and so when I was there, that was, was my first wildlife job. I had volunteered a little bit with um, Georgia Department of Natural Resources doing some check stations and stuff. Um, but when I was looking for summer jobs, I knew I had to like spread my net really wide because I had like zero experience. And um, the good thing about the SCA is a lot of people who are hiring for wildlife positions on there like understand that they're like giving people their first foot in the door. Uh, um, and right. that was the job I wanted more than anything, like to do these sea turtles. <laughs> I just wanted to see sea turtles. Um, and so, and that Absolutely, was a really yeah. <laughs> interesting, I think that was like the best job I could have had at the beginning is, uh, you know, my job, I lived on the island, which if you know anything about Cumberland Island, it's a national seashore. Um, most of the island is actually wilderness area. There's historic houses out there. Um, there's a couple in holdings still where people um, like long-term related to like the Carnegie family actually have in holdings and come out there in the summer and stuff. But um, for the most part, there's people who camp for a couple days <laughs> and there's like a camp attendant. And those are the only people that are on the island all the time while well, I lived on the island. <laughs> um, I got to go off one day oh, a week wow. to go grocery shopping. I had to ride, you have to ride a ferry over to um, St. Mary's, Georgia, and then I'd have okay. to catch the ferry to come back in the afternoon. But it was a really cool experience. And, you know, it was my job was to go out every morning at dawn, look for, you look for the tracks of the sea turtles coming onto shore, you look for where they nested, and then you actually, like, probe in the sand to find the nest. And we were invent putting protective screen covers over them because you do have a hog problem <laughs> on the island um, and predators get into the nest um, very easily. And so we put protective screen coverings on them and sometimes we would move them if they were too close to where like the high tide would inundate them with water and then they like suffocate. Um, and once they hatch, we do like a hatch inventory. Um, and the best part of this job, I mean, that was super cool, like totally cool to me. Um, the best part of the job was that there was, there's one biologist for that island and he does everything. And at the time I wanted to know everything about everything. And so I got to go with him to, you know, I did a night of bat catching. I helped set up hog traps. I, you know, went with him to do all sorts of stuff. So I learned way more right. than just about sea turtles. Absolutely. And that's a great way to sort of ease into conservation. Um, you always hear about lots of things going on uh, with, with sea turtles and different projects people are working on. So I feel like that's a good, like familiar place where a lot of people have at least heard of conservation. Like if people don't know what that is in general, they might have heard of something about sea turtles with it because that's just like a common thing that happens. So it sounds like a pretty good way to it ease is, into yeah. it. Yeah. It's one of those things that like everyone thinks sea turtles are super cool. So they care. Right. <laughs> so That helps. Absolutely. <laughs> and so moving from there, um, I know like after working a lot with turtles, you sort of moved into, you, you kind of went from species to species, which is awesome because I feel like, like, 
looking at the track sheet, it, it kind of just seems like you went through a lot of different species, learning about them, and then getting to where you're at now, you've got a lot of overall knowledge. But the next thing you sort of got into was sage grouse, Yeah, correct? so I kind of, I yeah, after I worked on Cumberland, summer after I graduated um, from my undergrad, I, I went to Wyoming and worked for the summer on a sage grouse project where we trapped and collared sage grouse, um, did vegetation surveys. We were looking at like, um, we're count, we're looking at move movements seasonally. We were looking at, um, habitats that they were in, um, categorizing the different grasses and forbs, which would be, you know, and I guess sagebrush, um, which would be what they eat at different times of year. Um, and then we also did, like chick counts to kind of see how many chicks they had. Um, and that actually is a, that was, yeah, in Wyoming, that's a long-term project that I'm pretty sure they still have going on. <laughs> oh, wow. And, you know, so how does this work? Since Like you were a student at UGA and I'm just not sure how, how this all works out. Cause I know there's a couple things that we'll talk about down the line where it's like, you know, there's something in South Dakota, something in Ohio state. So, the whole time, though, you're a student at UGA, but they send you to these different places while you work on these projects. Is that how it works? Um, so basically, you it's just like any other job. You um, There are job sites um, like Texas A&M Job Board, Wildlife Job Board, I think is what it's called. It's one of the best ones. But so a lot of what I did is actually working for graduate students on their projects. Um, and so they are hiring people so technically you're working for whatever university that they go to um so they hire technicians seasonally to help with their research um and so it's it's the same as anything else where you find a job that's posted and you send in your resume and a cover letter oh, okay. and you hope you get an interview <laughs> so this is so this is after you graduated from UGA then right yep yeah oh okay so you worked on that and then you went into, uh, this is pretty cool too, Black Bear Research Tech, and this was back at UGA again? Yep. So I um, I actually, so after Sage Grouse, I went back to Sea Turtles for a little while um, and then decided that maybe, because I, I thought I wanted to be a sea turtle biologist for a long time. I thought maybe I don't want to be a sea turtle biologist. <laughs> um, and so I was actually at home for about a month, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, um, applying to different jobs. And I got in contact with a girl that was a master's student at UGA while I was getting my undergrad. And she had a friend who was desperately looking for a technician on her Black Bear project in central Georgia. And so I like contacted her and in the end I got it. And <laughs> Um, I ended up working for three different grad students by the end of oh, wow. my time there. Yeah. <laughs> and what kind of what kind of things did you do? Like, what what did you have to do on a day to day basis? Pretty much in the Black Bear Research Project. Yeah. So for that one, um, I started out working for a grad student who she was studying um, female movements and cub survival, um, and so I was tracking um bears female bears radio collars um I think I did it I want to say like every four days I had to track all of them so basically it was like you do as many as you can one day and then you do the next as many as you can the next day and by the time you're done you start over um so that's what I did 
when I first started in the spring, I got to go with them. We actually went, um, identified done site locations because in Georgia, um, with winter not being super intense, um, female bears like are the, they tend to be the only ones that den. More often, males tend to still be active, but they're denning because they're going to have their cubs and they're not in a like true um, hibernation state. So they're still right. kind of awake. But anyway, so we would find dens, dart the female bears, um, do work up the cubs, you know, ear tag the cubs and know how many there were. Um, and then um, throughout the summer, we would track the females whose dens we had went to and like try and get the cubs to tree so that we could count the number of cubs to do cub survival. Oh, wow. So you, you had to go and actually, too. yeah, so you had to go actually, like, grab the cubs, right, and check them out and that sort of thing? Yeah, and when they're, like, little and in the den, we would. Yeah, when they, once they, like, grew, they just, you know, mom sends them up a tree and mom kind of tries to get you to get away from our cubs. And so you have, right. you know, some time. That's what I was going <laughs> to, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, were there ever any close calls? Like, you're trying to put a collar on or check out a cub or whatever and then you know mama bears come around the corner at you guys kind of a thing or... um you know the girl I worked for might have had more than I did but I really I had one I had two times and like I said they're not like in true hibernation so I had one time the second like winter that we were going into dens I had one time that we had darted the bear and it didn't quite hit right and she woke up and she just like came running out of the, <laughs> the den oh, wow. um, right at us but like not she was fleeing <laughs> so but yeah. for a minute you're like oh god <laughs> um, and I had I had one bear when I was trying to count cubs um one summer that you know they do they like pop their jaw at you as a warning sign first and like mm-hmm. she like ran off and then she came back popped her jaw at me and ran off and they came back and then I was just like, oh, this is, like, too much. Like, I think I just, I got it. Like, I'm good. <laughs> right. At some point, she's going to not deal with me being here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so you would go out and basically, when you'd put, would you have to put the collars on yourself? Or when you first started, were you kind of tracking bears that somebody else had already put the collars on? And then you slowly started to get introduced to doing that yourself? Yep, yeah, that's how it went. So when I first started, I started um, like in February. And so it, when we first started, it was just like tracking these bears that already had collars on them. Um, then um, luckily I proved myself and they let me, not that I was like super important the first year, <laughs> but they let me come when they did the den work. And then um, I kept tracking bears and that's summer I worked for a different grad student on the same project actually setting hair snares to do genetic analysis on the bear population to try and get a population estimate but while I worked for her I also because I'd been around so long and made wheeled and dealed my way into stuff um there's a PhD student on the project and I um I got to help him trap and radio collar bears um as well so i kind of did the full range of everything you could do i guess (laughs) yeah and and being that this was like with uga what areas of georgia because i know like we've you know we've got some property out in 
uh, Polk County where we do have bears, but, you know, we don't see them often, but they're there. You know, I know that they're in kind of crazy places too. Like they're in Norcross, Georgia, like in a busy place. Like they're just kind of spread out. And then of course, all around Helen and Blue Ridge and, and this kind of area, like there's bears everywhere. So what general areas were you specifically going to do the research? So I was like down near, I think the closest town to where I lived was Cochrane, Georgia. And okay. like Warner Robins, kind of. I mean, not really oh, Robins, yeah. but close-ish to Warner Robins. Right. Right. That makes sense. Awesome. Well, and so as you're and we're gonna get into some more of these projects you did with with Swift Fox and, and different things, but as we go through this, like when did you sort of start? Um obviously you had the interest in animals, you know, from the beginning and, and getting into the world of conservation, but when did hunting sort of play into it? Like, when did you actually start hunting? Yeah, so I did not grow up with a hunting family. Uh, my Both my parents have hunted. They are not, like, against it by any means. It's just not something that they do. And, you know, growing up in Georgia, it can, unless you have private property or you're in a hunt club, it can be kind of hard to get into. Um, so I was never really exposed to it very much. Um, like I had friends that hunted and stuff, but it wasn't until undergrad when I was at university of Georgia, um, at a student chapter of the wildlife society, which is the professional wildlife biologist society. Um, and we, I was on the board and we actually started kind of like a hunter mentor program. And so like an experienced hunter in the group would take an inexperienced hunter um, hunting. And so I did um, that year, I went deer hunting, I think three times, extremely unsuccessfully, didn't even pretend to see a deer. Um, and, and then we also went dove hunting, um, which we saw doves, but you know, they're not easy <laughs> when you're not right. experienced. So I did that. And then with all this moving around, um, you know, I was still a Georgia resident, no matter what. Um, so there's limited experience, limited like opportunity. Cause I also wasn't making a lot of money. So buying an out of state, um, non-resident <laughs> tag isn't that easy. Um, but right. I did when I was working on the bear project is when I first, um, the, I lived on a WMA and the WMA manager actually took me out on a deer hunt and I got two deer in one day. It was my first experience. Oh, so that was the first day you'd gotten a deer and you got two? Yeah. Oh, wow. And, and so did you say that was Georgia? Yep. Yeah. That was in Georgia. And so what did you end up getting? Was it a couple of bucks or a buck? I got a doe and then it was just like a little spike bug that came walking up like literally five minutes later. And I was just like, can I shoot it? He was like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. So that's awesome. And, um, you know, kind of going from the black bear, uh, you did go into some swift fox research, which is pretty cool. So, uh, you know, I'm always curious learning more about foxes. Um, We've got a lot of red foxes where we live and then at our property a couple hours out we've got a lot of gray foxes more so out there but with the swift fox what kind of research did you do with that yeah so i actually um i worked for a graduate student in south dakota and then later i studied swift fox for my master's research um 
but they um they're native to the short and mixed grass prairies um at one time they were considered extirpated but in in some areas not all they're coming back and in some places they're really coming back (laughs) um but so i worked just outside of badlands national park um in south dakota and we had we were trapping foxes putting radio collars on them um collecting genetics data and um disease looking to see um for like black plague basically is what we're looking for um and then tracking them so i was going out every night because they're active at night um and tracking these radio colored foxes uh, finding dens doing den site surveys which is a lot of vegetation stuff um would you set out trail cams and things like that we would do trail cameras on the dens in the springtime to can like to get the best way to get like if they have pups and how many pups they might have um we tried to sit at a den and look which was i mean it worked the one time but it was extremely time consuming. <laughs> so. Right. so yeah absolutely yeah and you know after that you did some you were an urban wildlife research tech at ohio state so for this were you doing more research on like how urban wildlife um maybe some some types of wildlife that can be detrimental in the urban area and and things like that or just kind of seeing populations in the urban area and how they were doing um we were it's honestly it's so we were even though i worked for ohio state i was in chicago and we were um trapping and radio collaring um coyotes in the suburbs of Chicago and downtown Chicago. Um, and so a lot of it oh, that's awesome. was most like collar and faller kind of thing. Like we know that they're mm-hmm. there. What are they doing? How are they <laughs> surviving? Um, you know, how do they travel through the city kind of thing? Um, doing right. there was quite what a bit of get? education too. Cause obviously like most people who live in downtown Chicago or even not would ever think that they're, for coyotes in downtown Chicago. <laughs> right, absolutely. I've seen pictures of, um, you know, coyotes right in the middle of Atlanta, like right where all the crazy buildings are. And it's just yep. like kind of mind-blowing at first when you're like, how are they, you know? And so obviously coyotes are everywhere now. Um, they're in like every neighborhood. They're in pretty much every city. They're, um, they're just everywhere. So, you know, that's something that... Um, I've been getting into more lately is trying to get better with, you know, uh, hunting, trapping coyotes. And it's challenging because the, where I live, you know, they're like, they're around, but they're a little bit further down the woods near to the Creek. It seems like that's where one of our neighbors said there's a den and everything, but it's far enough away that what we get a lot of at the house is we get a ton of deer activity and even like fawns and stuff. And we get a ton of, um foxes so it just kind of seems like we're almost that safe zone where like these animals are hanging out like foxes and things that stay a little bit closer to a house to kind of stay away from coyotes and then fawns and things so it seems like we're almost the safe zone where yeah a coyote comes through every now and then but we seem more out of their path and more like right in the middle of like major deer and fox and other things territory so i don't get as many as i'd like at coyotes here they're a little bit more um you know, around there, there, there's more of them like out at the property in, in Polk County, but 
um, still. So what kinds of things would you find with your research when you looked into how they were getting around, how they were moving right around people, right under their noses? Uh, what kind of sets do you guys do, from, like, especially from um, a research perspective, when you guys set a trap, like, what, what, are there any differences? Do you guys use the typical, like, I know for trappers in general, the MB550 is one of the best traps that people like to use for coyotes. Do you guys use the same type of traps when you're doing research, or are they a little bit different? Um, um, yeah, so we actually, um, depending on where we were trapping, it kind of changed, and of course, we had, like, since we're doing research, you know, we're trapping in places that, like, a normal person would get to trap and we're allowed to do things right. that like you're not normally allowed to do when you trap um recreationally right. but um we did so we had we did a lot like when we could we would do like neck snares just with a stopper so they don't actually you know they're fine um, <laughs> um so we did the majority of what we did was snares um we did do a handful of foothold traps and we yeah we used exactly what you know your recreational trapper would use there's those are yeah. designed um to be the best way you know to be to do what they're supposed to do on purpose um so there's no reason right. to make them any different for us um honestly we we had to do more like foothold traps in the inner city just so you know next snares could be a huge issue <laughs> um right but yeah i when i was there i we honestly didn't i think we caught one in a foothold trap and everything else was with next snares um so i gotcha um for that because i've asked a lot of a lot of trappers this question and i typically get the same answer but i'm wondering if there will be a different answer from like a research trapper perspective but you know like a lot of times what clogs up a coyote set are possums raccoons like all the things you're maybe like if you're specifically targeting coyote you're not trying to get those but those tend to be what clogs up all the sets did you guys have a similar type thing or or was there something you guys caught on to that you can do to single it out to where it's more coyote than like possum raccoon um you know different things like that we have we absolutely had the same same problem. I think yeah. that's that's just how it goes, um, especially with foothold traps. I mean, with with snares, it's I don't. And obviously, in Georgia, snares aren't hugely popular. Here in Montana, that's they're very popular because <laughs> um, you need a lot of traps out really fast. Um, and so it's obviously with snares, you you can adjust the height of your snare to to make a big difference the foothold trap same thing you can you got to think about like how far the animal has to reach to smell your stuff and make sure their foot's in the right place so you can do some stuff like that to try and minimize your like incidental captures but everyone has that problem (laughs) right absolutely um (laughs) and you know what did you guys eventually find like how are the coyotes, based on your research and, and the trapping and co- radio coloring and all that, how are they sort of moving through Chicago so easily uh, right through, like, downtown and, like, you know, neighborhoods with a ton of people? How are they sort of getting around? Yeah, so for one, they move at night, um, so that helps. They wait until things have, like, really calmed down with people. They're using – there's, like, 
a huge like train track system through Chicago being a big big city and you know part of the train industry for a long time um and they're using those train tracks a lot um to travel Mm -hmm. they they find really interesting places to hide actually um was tracking one during the daytime that was just hiding in some bushes underneath and a window of somebody's office in a high-rise office building so like no one would know that they were there you know they're right um, (laughs) and so they're and there is Chicago is also really interesting because you know they have they have like the lakefront um like green areas parks and stuff and even in the suburbs there's a lot of like um county and city parks and so there is a lot of somewhat wilder space (laughs) than you'd expect that actually gives them a place to to hide and you know it's it's not like it never happens they definitely come out at night and people see them and freak out but um there is kind of wild spaces there that they they can find refuge in until people go home and go to bed (laughs) right right absolutely um yeah that's awesome and that that's pretty cool that you got all that experience and including you know just trapping different species and doing it for research purposes um, and then channeling into your hunting, because I know uh, we talked about some of the species, you know, you'd hunted, you told me mule deer, whitetail, elk, pronghorn. Um, I mean, when it comes to, you know, recreational, you know, just hunting for food and that sort of thing, based on all the different research and all the things you've seen out in the woods and, and all these different states, do you feel like in any way that made you a better hunter? Oh, no. I feel like maybe it should but I mean (laughs) I only say that because my elk hunting experience I've gone hunting I've never killed an elk I've hunted elk twice in the area that I do the elk surveys but I don't do them during hunting season and I've yet to even see an elk during hunting season (laughs) um, no not necessarily (laughs) it does give you know like which most hunter, I feel like most avid hunters are very good about like researching the species and understanding what the species like needs are and what they might be looking for. And, uh, you know, like out here, we have a lot of like one year could be a drought year and the next year is a super wet year and hunting those two years are going to be drastically different experiences and you're like targeting drastically different areas. Um, And so I think like, maybe I'm more aware of that than most people and like maybe there's right. some things that since I'm out and about and I'm looking at wildlife every day I, I like maybe get a better idea of where they might be but mostly I would say no <laughs> right so maybe not so much for hunting I feel like with trapping like if you went out and set a trap line and you know I, I feel like in that sort of case you would that'd probably be where it'd be more beneficial for you having to like since you had to actually trap and set snares for research purposes maybe that would be that more direct like this is exactly the type of thing I was yeah yeah like I've definitely built built an experience by the jobs that I've had I mean granted a lot of some of the trapping that I've done for jobs isn't you know exactly or even necessarily even close to what you would do if you were recreational trapping but it does yeah it gives me that like 
you know, like I know what canids are looking for because I've trapped canids so much. And I, I know, I, I mean, I wouldn't be great at it everywhere, but I have certain areas within my area that like, I know what's there and I would know where to go for it if I really wanted to. Um, so Absolutely. that definitely helps, but there's, I'm, I don't know, most of the trappers that I um, work with on a regular basis for work have leaps and bounds more knowledge than I do because I've been doing it for so long. (laughs) Right. And, you know, we're going to kind of transition here a little bit, but I know with, um, so I know there's a new, you know, nominee for interior, interior security, which is Deb Haland. And I've heard a lot of concern come out about this, but kind of looking into it, it seems like a lot of Wyoming and Montana senators are opposing this um, just because of comments that have come out about, I guess her being very anti-trapping um, what, like what being that you're on the side of it, of, you know, a Montana um, wildlife biologist, and you're kind of right in the midst here of where a lot of this opposition's coming from. What are you sort of hearing? Is there a lot of uh, like, is there a lot of within the department, like people are freaking out kind of a thing or what seems to be the feel over you there? Know, I, I am so far away from like our capital and <laughs> what what's going on over there that I honestly don't know <laughs> yeah it's just kind of like focus on what you're doing and just kind of you know channel more into um the research you're doing in the in the about the animals and not pay so much attention yeah, to that side of yeah, it my my thought process is that I you know like I get my data and I do my stuff and I do the best I can with that um as far as like spreading the knowledge I have about what's going on on the ground um to the people um over in the capital have to make those decisions and that's that's what my job is <laughs> so. right right you're just providing the science and and kind of yeah. going from there Absolutely. And so give us a walkthrough of like one of the most, you know, like one of your favorite hunts, whatever it was, whether it was mule deer, whitetail, but basically the best hunt to you that you just remember where you felt most accomplished at the end of the day and just like, you know, excited about the meat you got to harvest, the hunt as a whole, just kind of give us a walkthrough of your favorite hunt ever. Yeah, for sure. So it was actually this last hunting season. Um, so like I said, I'm not, I mean, I, I have experience hunting. I have hunted every season since I moved to Montana, which is three seasons. I hunted one season in South Dakota, one season in Georgia. So it's not like I have this wide range, but so I have always hunted with somebody. Um, so I wasn't super confident that I like, not that I, you know, as soon as I get the animal, um, then what is kind of my <laughs> thought. Um, but this year I um, was actually going through some personal stuff and um, was trying to figure out, oh gosh, what do I do now that I, I don't have help? And so I, I got a pep talk from actually my regional supervisor about how I knew what I was doing and I'd be fine. Um, and I went out one afternoon um on an antelope hunt by myself. This was the first time I've ever hunted by myself. Um, And I successfully harvested an antelope. I actually um, quartered it out in the field, which I had never even seen in real life. I watched a YouTube video before I left and bagged it up and 
carried it back to my car and brought it home. And I, I processed the whole thing and packaged it by myself. Um, and that was, I mean, to say that I felt like a badass was an understatement. <laughs> so, oh, absolutely. That's amazing. It was, it was really exciting. No, that is amazing. And you just watched the YouTube video. You just watched the YouTube video and went out and pretty much were able to replicate for that. For the most part, part, I definitely like came home with a heck of a lot more grass than the guy in the video had, but <laughs> you know, it, it really and that was kind of what the pep talk was from my my regional supervisor was just like, I mean, people do this every day. Like you're just as competent as anybody else. So it kind of just helped having that right. like voice of confidence telling me I could do it and then like actually going and doing it and it's not like antelope hunting is it's way different than deer hunting it's it's really fun but it's also can be really hard (laughs) um so it was just I don't know it was crazy to me it was super exciting and it was kind of what I needed to like pick up my mood again and like (laughs) Absolutely. And what, what was your, like, what was your setup? Were you like using a blind? What were you hunting with? Like, how did it sort of kind of progress? Um, so I actually hunt? went to one of our properties that is, it's private property that we have, um, like an agreement with for hunting access. And so I had to, I went to the office and signed in and it's not too far away from where I live, um, in Montana. And I, I drove up there and I could actually got really lucky. And one of the herds was like within like I could see them from the highway and so I drove by a couple times and like made my plan of attack and I I did it was a spot in stock basically so I I parked way up the road and I I I hiked in two miles I think to make sure that I was hidden by a hill um and crawled on top of the hill and did it that way so blinds are really popular really popular especially for um archery hunting antelope because it's I can't even imagine having to get that close to an antelope (laughs) right (laughs) and so with that are you going to have anything done or or did you already with like a a amount or something like that to remember it or you know just like did you have anything kind of done with it so I actually I harvested my first antelope last year um and I had somebody with me and I I have that I have a um a European mount of that one and this one I did keep the head I just haven't I'm gonna clean it myself and take care of it myself but I haven't really done anything yet it's it's just frozen um but yeah I'm sure I'm I'm gonna keep it and I'll I have of course I I collect skulls so I have a whole collection that it will be added to very cool that's awesome and what kind of uh stuff did you end up making with the yeah, so I, I still have meat from last year, so I'm still working on that. But I did, I just had the burger <laughs> that I made for the first time. I I um, I made a cast. I can't remember what I made with it. I made a castle. I love antelope meat. If you've never had antelope meat, you need to get some. <laughs> I think it's so good. I, I definitely need to. So so for you, that's probably your favorite you've had so far out of like white tail, mule deer, whatever the case uh, is. Definitely over deer. I really like elk as well. Um, but it's <laughs> maybe someday I'll harvest an elk. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep trying. So, um, but yeah, I really like elk meat, but I really like antelope meat. And it's definitely more 
like I'm I'm going to fill my antelope tag <laughs> compared to whether or not I fill my elk tag. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So kind of to, to close out the show, um, you know, we've, we've heard a lot of awesome things on the research you've done, some of the hunts you've done. Um, and to close out the show for the future, what do you kind of see as maybe like the top three species? I know probably one of those is going to be elk because you've said that. But what are maybe the top three species you'd like to um, harvest yourself? And just like you did with the antelope, kind of, you know, go out on your own, harvest them yourself and, and go from there. What would maybe be the top Definitely three elk. <laughs> um, I feel like I have this right. battle with these elk that I'm going to get one someday. <laughs> um, I have also thrown around the idea of putting in for a, t- a moose tag in Western Montana um I think that would be really cool and oddly enough um I and I've never really hunted for them but I should is I would like someday to get a sage grouse because I want to eat a sage grouse (laughs) right (laughs) absolutely well you'll have to let me know if you get that moose tag because that's something that you know I've been thinking about too applying for is a moose tag and that's really one of my dream hunts that I want to do is just a big bull moose, whether it's, I don't even really care where, but Alaska would be awesome. But whether it's Montana, Alaska, Colorado, wherever, you know, it'd be an epic adventure. So definitely. (laughs) Absolutely. So let me know if you get one of those. Um, But that is awesome. And Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was great to catch up with you and to hear all the awesome things you've been doing. I know our listeners will enjoy um, and be excited to hear a lot of the research you've done, um, a lot of the trapping aspects, and obviously the amazing hunts you've done. So thank you so yeah, much for absolutely. coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on the Sam Hunter Podcast, where we discuss all things hunting, trapping, and fishing. Be sure to tune in next time, and we'll see you there. <laughs>